10. You will take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. The task that we have undertaken for the next several weeks is to, as a preaching team, along with Pastor Scott, is to just preach through the Gospel of Luke, and we will continue doing so today. As we come to Luke chapter 18, Pastor Charlie uh, was there last week, and uh, part of the text which she was preaching from, we will begin from today. But one thing to keep in mind uh, about the context of this passage is to keep in mind that this is nearing the end of Jesus's ministry. He's, he's on his way back to Jerusalem uh, to, to die. Uh, in future sermons, we will hear more about that. But for nearly three years or so, Jesus has been preaching and teaching and has been getting a large portion of the population excited. Believing that the Messiah has come. Believing this is indeed now Israel's time to be restored back to its prominence. And there are those who, with this anticipation, hear Jesus speak in terms of other things and they drop off the scene or uh, they once see him do wonderful miracles and then start teaching about things that are not really important to them. So they sort of just back off. But there are still those, even amongst his disciples, his 12, that were longing for Jesus finally just taking the key and, and, and unlocking everything so that Israel would once again be the prominent kingdom that God had promised it to be, uh, to establish this eternal throne that he promised to David. And so as we see Jesus making his way back to Jerusalem, these things that we have talked about, even the uh, narrative of the Pharisee and the publican in their prayer life. Uh, this is uh, a portion of scripture in which Luke being led by the Holy Spirit, as well as the other gospel writers, particularly the two synoptic gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, their stories start to come back together in lineup because this is bringing to a climax, if you will, uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we can kind of sum this up in the idea of the kingdom of God. In our passage today, we will recognize this phrase used multiple times. Uh, this kingdom of God, as I had just described, as many of those who were following Jesus, they had this image that Jesus would usher in this political kingdom, that the Romans would be dispersed from the promised land from the Holy Land, uh, and that the, the, the reign of the king of Israel would now be the, the law of the land. Uh, and so keeping this in mind and understanding that what the Jewish followers of Jesus were anticipating wasn't exactly what Jesus was emphasizing at this time of history, uh, it's helpful for us to kind of remind ourselves of what the kingdom of God is. So. Basically, what you have on the screen right now is one commentator, uh, uh, Hendrickson, who sums up the kingdom of God. And again, this is by no means uh, 
extensive. It's not going to be agreed upon by everyone in Christianity. But this basically gives us an idea that when we think about the kingdom of God, particularly in the ministry of Christ in the Gospels, this, this sort of sums it up. First of all, we think of the kingdom of God as being God's kingship or rule or recognized sovereignty. Just the fact that God is in control, that God is the true God. And so when we think about the kingdom of God, we think about his ruling as a God. Another aspect of it would be just in the sense of complete salvation. That is the spiritual as well as the material blessings that come along those who follow after Christ. We think about this being the kingdom of God when we think about these blessings that come through the work of salvation that God provides. The next one is a little hard for me as one who was trained in deep roots of dispensationalism, but to say that the kingdom of God has something to do with the church, let me just remind you that the word church is not found in the Old Testament. I have to say that just as a disclaimer as a graduate of Piedmont Bible College. But when we think about the church and its relationship to the kingdom of God, we realize that while Christ is going to build his church, he's building it among whom? Everyone that comes to know God is their savior through Christ, through the work of Christ. So no matter what your uh, dispensational leanings may be, we need to understand that when we think about the kingdom of God, it does involve the church because the church is involved of both the Jewish people as well as Gentiles, regardless of their nationality, but more importantly, to whom they are placing their trust and faith in. But when we think about the kingdom of God, we have to we have to think about that. And then finally, uh, we think about the kingdom of God as being this redeemed universe that we look forward to. Uh, when we think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, we think about this ushering in of a new time that will never end in which he will be reigning forever. And again, there's a lot of details that people will argue about and distinguish themselves from each other when they do so. But when it comes down to it, when we think about the kingdom of God, it ultimately rests in his making new of all things and that he's going to redeem. He is going to take all that which has been made wrong through the curse of sin and he's going to make it new forever everlasting and that's what we hope in right we, we don't hope and that somehow we can take some spiritual duct tape to the world in which we live right now and to somehow hold it together and, re, and and keep its beauty for us to cherish as much as there is beauty in this earth and as much as there is joy that we can in, we can participate in hopefully we're not going to settle for this forever we've been given a better promise we've been given a better hope and when we think about the kingdom of God, it is encapsulated uh, or it encapsulates this idea of a redeemed universe. When we think about the songs that we've been singing this morning, hopefully you've gotten a hint that they weren't coincidental. When we think about all oh, that with yonder sacred throne, we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all, because we realize that Jesus Christ is going to rule forever. The kingdom of God, while it, there are aspects of it that are real in our lives today, we look forward to the glorification that we will experience when the kingdom of God is established, when Christ returns and we enjoy him forever. When we sing a song about my Jesus fair, my Jesus strong shall come to reign. 
to reign in majesty. Why? Because the Lamb arose and death is slain. And we can sing together, Lord, come in victory. And even as we think about a song of commitment, like take my life and let it be, let my voice only sing, always only for my king. We understand that there is a kingdom of God that is present now and that one that will continue forever and ever. Again, that was different than those in Jesus' day. And many of the Jews who, again, were anticipating something right then and there. They were hoping that Jesus was this fulfillment of the promise that the Old Testament prophets were were speaking of. But yet that was not what Jesus was emphasizing at this point. Even when we think about our Christian growth lesson this morning, right? The Great Commission is given because Jesus has been given all authority over heaven and earth. He's been given this authority. This is the kingdom of God. That Jesus, even as he was commissioning his disciples, as he was giving us as his followers instruction for our lives to go into all the world and preach the gospel, teaching men all things, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, making disciples. All of this was done within the realm of the kingdom of God because Jesus Christ possesses all authority to do so. And so we can go forth into all the world with the confidence and with the the encouragement of knowing that we do that within his power. But let's go back to before that great commission. Let's go back before Jesus gives himself as a sacrifice on the cross. And let's go back to verse 15 of chapter 18 as we read from Luke's gospel. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall literally certainly not never enter And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter 
the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, with what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our brothers and parents or children for the sake of the, I'm sorry, homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to help us see what your spirit has intended to show us. We need your help to believe, so we need faith. I pray that you have cultivated hearts and minds to be fertile soul, so as the seed that is cast forth will find good ground, that it would grow, that it would produce fruit. We need you to do this. There, there are no clever words. There are no insightful meanings of, of words. There are no energies in my being that can, that can make this work. So, Father, I need you to speak through me. I pray that you would open ears and eyes to receive the word. And we ultimately pray that you will, again, bring forth fruit knowing that as your word goes forth, it will accomplish exactly what you have intended for it to do. And we thank you for that. We glorify you for what you're going to do. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As much as we emphasize the idea of the kingdom of God, it is also really important for us to focus on what I think is the driving point of the text today. And that's a question. What is the question? Who then can be saved? It's an important question. It's an important question everybody who lives on the face of the planet should ask. It's a question that we should ask of each other. It's a question that should be studied. It's a question that should be investigated. It's a question that should be held uh, in all seriousness of life. Who then can be saved? This incorporates an idea, number one, of those who receive or those who enter the kingdom of God, as we see it in verse 17. Uh, to such belongs the kingdom of God uh, as children who entered the kingdom of God in verse 24. Verse 25, Jesus goes on to say, again, the person to enter the kingdom of God, verse 29 uh, which it says to, for the sake of the kingdom of God, for those who uh, are entering into eternal life, which is the second aspect in verse 18. Salvation involves the inheritance of eternal life. The question that the ruler was asking Christ. Verse 22, we see salvation involves treasure in heaven. As Jesus says, that if you do what he says, mainly to distribute to the poor everything that you have sold, then you'll have treasure in heaven. 
You know, all of these things, I believe, are here in this passage to for us to focus on when we think about salvation. Those are the terms we use, right? When we talk to people about Christ, when we talk, when we witness to other people, when we evangelize, are we not talking to them about these things? Those who are able to enter or receive God's kingdom? To those who will inherit eternal life? Aren't we talking to them about the, uh, the treasure that we're laying forth in heaven as opposed to living after the things of this world? So when we think about the question, who then can be saved? This is what we're talking about. These ideas. And again, they're they're neatly packaged for us. And of course, the Holy Spirit had to inspire the three points in the, without the poem. I don't have a poem, but we've got three points here at least of three things that are included in what we think of salvation. Who then can be saved? Well, let's take this question that Peter asked or those who heard Jesus say these things asked. We can conclude that it was Peter because he's the one who responded to it, but we don't know. It just says here in Luke that those who heard him, they asked this question, who then can be saved? Well, what's the answer? Well, let's cut straight to the, to, to the quick before we elaborate a little bit. But in verse 27, the answer is no one can be saved unless God saves them. That's the bottom line. If we're going to take something away from this passage of Scripture, we're answering the question, who then can be saved? The answer, no one, unless God saves them. Now, we have three wonderful areas in which we can break this down into. First of all, in the passage, and again, Pastor Charlie uh, dealt with this passage of Scripture, but we'll deal with it again today, regarding childlike acceptance. Is this what it means to be saved? Well, if God saves them, they're going to have to come with childlike acceptance. I love the way that Edersheim in his life and times of Jesus the Messiah puts this. this is, we could describe this childlike acceptance this way. No intellectual qualification nor of distinction due to a great rabbi, but only humility receptiveness, meekness, and a simple application to and trust in the Christ. So when we think about what does it mean to come to Jesus like a child? When Jesus said, unless you come to me like this child, you can, you can never enter the kingdom of God. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about a being who is not dependent upon their intellectual qualifications. You see, we have people in this world who grow up in church and they learn a lot of doctrine. They learn a lot of stuff. And they think that through their intellectual understanding about life, that somehow this is earning them the kingdom of God. But that's not like a child. A child doesn't have the opportunity. They're not old enough to have learned. They're not old enough to have gained some sort of notoriety on their own. They're not able to be confident in what they can do. Now, that doesn't mean that children don't think that they can do whatever they get their hands on. But they don't have any sense of, of obtaining the kingdom of God through their abilities or through their intellect. Again, of no intellectual qualification or distinction due to a great rabbi, but only humility, receptiveness, meekness, and a simple application to 
and trust the Christ. You know what one thing children can do? They can trust their parents. From, a, from the earliest of age, even though they will show their sin nature early on, when it comes down to when they're feeling vulnerable, when they are feeling fearful, when they're feeling anxious about anything, who do they run to? Their natural response is to trust, not themselves. They may do that initially, but once they realize that whatever they're facing is a lot bigger than what they can handle, they're going to be looking up. They're going to be running towards some legs or some feet that they're familiar with. They're going to be running up to somebody that they know. It can't be on their own. Let me give you an example of how this is taking place in the world in which we live today. Some of you may be familiar with who Jordan Peterson is. He's a Canadian psychiatrist who used, who used to teach at the University of Toronto. And my appeal to him is because I share a lot of views when it comes to culture. When it comes to an understanding about the way people should live in this world, there are so many things that I agree with him on. I wonder how is it that he can be so smart in so many areas in ways that in some ways Christians are ignorant to or maybe Christians are resistant to. But he's so far from the kingdom. If you know anything about him, there are those who have had opportunities to, to see a life of understanding of, of who Jesus is from a historical perspective. And he's even made comments of one who used to be an ardent atheist. As to now finding it amazing about how he can read the Bible and he can get some, some sense of truth out of it. But he's only getting it from a evolutionary way of thinking because he still thinks that that's the way we look at the origin of life. He's still looking at it from human terms. And there are many people that are mimicking that same sort of mindset and that same sort of behavior in thinking that if I can just get enough information, if I can just appreciate the literary value of the scriptures, if I can just understand that there's some moral teachings here, if I can just somehow live out the values that these this Judeo-Christian ethic that we hear so much about, if I can just somehow live that out, my life will be meaningful. Jesus says, no. You must come to me like a child. You're not going to figure this out. You're not going to be able to, to philosophize enough to be able to come to what the true issue is until you understand that the true need is to be as a sinner, lost, undone without Christ, to have his righteousness applied to my life and my unrighteousness, as we sang about earlier, pinned to the cross. We don't get it. We can appreciate Jesus as a great teacher all we want to. We can appreciate all the teachings as much as we want to. We can see value of living according to the Ten Commandments as much as we want. That is not going to obtain the kingdom of God. Jesus says it will never happen. You must come like a child. You must have childlike acceptance. 
immediately after this in Luke, and again, Luke does not write in paragraphs. He does not have chapter headings. He does not have little italics, you know, you know, okay, now we're going to talk about the rich young ruler. Uh, he just goes straight from talking about inheriting or, or obtaining the kingdom of God like a child straight to what? A ruler question. Now, we don't need to have this historically right after Jesus had this conversation with his disciples about, hey, don't hinder the children from coming. But from Luke and the other gospel writers' perspective, this is following the God mindset. A ruler questioned him, saying, good teacher, after we're told that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will enter at all, the ruler asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you notice, first of all, that he doesn't use Jesus' idea of kingdom of God. But you also notice we have to be very understanding that he didn't say, what shall I do to earn it? The ruler says, what shall I do to inherit it? Usually we think of inheritance as being passive, right? Now, we may lose it. There have been times in which people who uh, in a patriarchal system was due an inheritance, but they never received it because of something maybe that they did. But when we think about inheriting eternal life, at least the ruler's understanding that, well, I'm not earning this. I'm not going to get it. But he believes somehow that there is a way in which he can inherit. it. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is ex good except God alone. I love and I've. Jesus is not being cantankerous here. I will admit that I have been cantankerous when people say, Mark, you're a good guy. And I've responded to them, why are you calling me good? There's only one who's good, and that's God alone. Now, I do that because I'm sarcastic and cynical about also doing it in such a way where it may, in their opportunity, say, what are you talking about? God is only good. Well, yeah, that's exactly the point. Uh, we're not good. We need to save it. But Jesus is not trying to just be argumentative here. He says, why are you calling me good? Because there's only one that is good, and that's God alone. Jesus is resting on what he believes this man's understanding about God is and about what eternal life is about and what the kingdom of God is about. So that's the reason why I placed here in second. Who then can be saved? Well, keep the commandments. Now, hopefully, you've been under sound teaching enough to know what... what, what <laughs> Mark, you've gone off the straight end. I, I'm not sure what you were reading last week. I don't know who you were listening to, but that's not how we get to heaven. We don't get to heaven because of keeping the commandments. Well, wait a minute. Jesus said, why are you calling me good? Because there's only one that is good, and that's God. You know the commandments. There's a connection here. Let me ask you the, the question this way. Will there be anyone in heaven that is not righteous? No, it's not a trick question. You need to be righteous. There, there is no room in God's presence for sin. You must be righteous. So keep the commandments. 
this would be something that would be very familiar to this ruler, a ruler, by the way, most likely of the synagogue. The Talmud, which is a source of rabbinic law, it's, it's where uh, in, in Jewish, uh, the Jewish religion, it's a link between uh, the scripture and how they practice it. It's not the Old Testament. It's not scripture itself, but it's their writings of how they make the scriptures practical. And within the Talmud, it says there is nothing else that is good but the law. To the Jewish ruler, he would understand that when he says, good teacher, and when Jesus hears him say that and says, why are you calling me good? Because there's only one good, and that is God alone. He understands that it's traditional for the Jewish ruler to believe that the God, that the law and God are synonymous. And that there is an understanding that if you want to have inherit, if you want to inherit eternal life, if you want to spend eternity with God, that is somehow connected to the law. So Jesus says, Well, you know the law. And he and he gives him some of the laws found in the second tablet. Practical things. You know, say committing adultery or murder, stealing, bearing false witness, the positive one, honor your father and mother. These things that are, this is the law. And Jesus is showing him that his understanding that the good God and the good law combined, he doesn't have any room to stand with them. Even though, what is his response to Jesus? Oh, from the time I was a little youngster. Kind of like some of those youngsters that may have been trying to make their way to Christ, that the disciples were trying to cast away. So from the time I was a young person, I've been doing these things. I've kept the law. All these things I've kept from my youth. But we know that it's impossible to inherit eternal life by keeping the commandments because we can't keep them. The book of Romans makes that very clear. As a matter of fact, Paul says to the Galatians that the law, not only is it not a means of salvation, but it's actually our schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. It shows us our need, not because it, now again, let's be idealistic here. Let's, let's think in theoretical terms. If someone was able to keep the law and be perfect, then they would certainly have the right to be in God's presence forever. However, there's only been one person to be able to do that. And he came not to destroy the law, but to what? To fulfill the law. He came to live out righteously the law of God on our behalf or for anyone who would come to him for salvation. But we know that it's impossible to keep the commandments, but that doesn't mean that it's not necessary. Because if it were not for the application of his righteousness for yet when we were yet sinners, Christ dying for us. When we think about he who knew no sin became sin so that what we might 
obtain his righteousness, that we might be made the righteousness in him. So we are righteous when we are saved. We are righteous, not because of what we've done. Oh, no. But that doesn't just because we didn't do it doesn't mean it's not necessary. But thankfully, Jesus Christ was obedient to 100% of everything that God requires on our behalf so that by faith, it's not the life that I'm living, but it's Christ who lives through me. Right? So we understand that who can be saved? Well, first of all, someone who comes with childlike acceptance. But we have to keep in mind that it involves keeping the commandments. We just have to understand we can't keep them. But that doesn't mean that the commandments are not necessarily kept. Before I get myself in any more heretical trouble here, of course, hopefully I'm not there already. Let's go to the third point in which who can be saved? Follow Christ empty handed, detachment from the world. When he responded to Jesus, I've kept these all these things from my youth. Jesus heard this, said to him. Now you notice, Jesus doesn't say, oh no, you haven't. You haven't honored your father and mother. Oh yes, you have committed murder. Yes, I know you stole something when you were a little kid. Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus says that even if you did all of those things, one thing you still lack. So all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven. Now, this was not novel. While the Jewish rabbis would not normally ask such from their students, there were, according to Keener in his New Testament commentary, there were some radical Greek rabbis. Uh, he named some. I'm not sure if you recognize these names, Zeno or Diogenes. But these are examples of Greek rabbis who made such demands of their rich students. They did so to see if these students were truly interested in committing their life to studying their scriptures and their traditions. And oftentimes, these students would fail because they would always go back to their wealthy, secure background. So for Jesus to say this would not be novel. It's not as if he's just pulling something out of the hat that just sounds silly. But it was truly to reveal the heart of this ruler. Now, let's make sure that we don't misunderstand what Jesus said by thinking that he said something else. Jesus did not say that it's harder for a rich man to be saved than a poor man. There is no intuitive ability to trust Christ if you're poor than if you're rich. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus is not saying that being rich is a sin. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is because we live in a culture in which, while there are problems with riches, very clearly taught in Scripture, there's warning against people who want to build bigger barns. There's warnings against those who are rich in the church to trust in their wealth. 
there, there are specific descriptions which say you cannot serve both God and money. So there is no doubt there is warning against this easy trust in wealth, but there's no demonization of it like it is in the culture in which we have today. Much of the division we have in the world in which we live, particularly in the Western culture, is coming from people who are wanting to buy, well, you're rich, you don't deserve it, and here's some people who do deserve it, but they're poor. And this is not just a political statement. This is something that has infiltrated the gospel of Jesus Christ. That unless you have somehow renounced your, not only the fact that you've been blessed with things, but the fact that you don't deserve it, and that somebody else deserves it more than you do, and until you do that, you really aren't a Christian, that's wrong. But it's a cancer that is growing within the church today. So while it is very important that we understand that there is a grave warning about trusting in riches, we need to make sure we don't go off the other side on the cliff. I don't know how things were in Maine, but... There might have been some blessing or some encouragement if you had someone that was well off, more than the average person. I know that when I was pastoring in Denton, uh, there were people that I knew that were well off. God blessed the church that way. There's people here at Cornerstone that, you know what, there's a lot of things that come through the giving from people that hopefully aren't trusting in those riches to get them to heaven because they're giving their money, but because God has placed individuals in places to provide. So what does Jesus say? Sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And oftentimes we stop right there because, again, we think that the money thing is the issue. That if somehow he just sells everything, he becomes you know, communal in his way of living, he's just going to live in the basement of the church because he's, he's sold everything else, he's just going to depend on the church for everything, that that's it. But no, that's just getting rid of the problem. We know because of the reaction of this ruler to what Jesus said, that this is where his confidence lies. This is where his earthly being is based upon. This is where he gets his security from. This is where he gets his identity from. This is how he feels important and safe and secure in this world because he's got wealth. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this about this particular person. Jesus is not going around all over the place feeding people and saying, oh, by the way, you need to sell everything you've got and give to the poor. Now, there's some people he does. Uh, soon we will come across a later passage here in chapter 19 of somebody uh, that, that would fit the same bill. But Jesus, that's not his primary message. But to this ruler, that is the direct message. And for those of us who live in Western society, we can relate. Because no matter how much you have, you may not have the most in this body of believers, but I can promise you, you've got way more than the vast majority of the people in this world could ever dream of having. And we cannot afford to forget that. 
When we start to complain about when we lose a little bit of what we've got, we need to remember how blessed we have been. And we need to remember that Jesus spoke way too many times about being good stewards of what you've been given, regardless of whether it was 10 talents, five talents, or one talent. But to understand this particular person here had a problem. And he needed to repent of it. He needed to get rid of it. But that wasn't sufficient because Jesus doesn't stop with selling everything that you've got and giving it to the poor. Jesus goes on to say what? Come follow me. There's a replacement for that hole that has been made by the emptiness of the wealth. His dependence that is no longer called upon now should be replaced by something much greater. And so Jesus, when he realizes that this word of instruction has provided sadness now in this man's heart, says how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now for me, it's hard to get a piece of string through the eye of a needle. I don't care how many times I lick it and get it sharp at the end and try to get a magnifying glass and try to get it really close. Uh, it's just that that's impossible to me. So to think that I could somehow fit a camel, one hump or two hump, doesn't matter, into the eye of a needle, obviously is impossible. Now, there have been some efforts to try to make this a little bit more believable, like, well, the eye of the needle was just the name of this small, short gate that when the city walls around it, they would have this short little gate that people could crawl through, and it would be very difficult for a camel. No, it would be impossible for a camel to fit through the eye of the needle that Jesus is talking about. Impossible. Not close to relevant. Well, we can sort of see how that could work. No, impossible. It's impossible for man. But here's the gospel. Here's the good news. As much sadness that it brings to a heart that with man is impossible. It doesn't matter how intellectual you are. It doesn't matter how much education or experience you've accumulated. It doesn't matter how much of the commandment chart you felt like you've checked off positively, it doesn't even matter how many things you've given away. It's impossible for you to save yourself. But, as Jesus says, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. This doesn't mean that it's possible for you to win the basketball game because God's on your side. This doesn't mean that it's possible for you to make it through another day of work because God is on your side. What Jesus is speaking about here specifically, what is not possible with man, that is salvation, is possible with God. 
So when we think about what God has called us to do, even earlier in chapter nine of this gospel of Luke, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it because you can't, you can't save your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you give up what is holding you back, if you give up on the clutch you have on this world, if you give up holding on to the things that are temporarily satisfying to you in your sin, it's possible because it's God who saves. So I'd encourage you this morning, for anyone who's able to listen to my voice, I would encourage you to understand that the same possibility for this that was presented to this ruler is possible for you. You just need you need to understand that you you can't do it. It's it's necessary for you to come like a child. To lose yourself, if you will. It's necessary for the commandments to be kept, and it's important for you to place your faith and your dependence, not in what you've done or what you think you can do, but to think back nearly 2,000 years ago, there, there was a Savior who, again, as we sing about, by nails that were made by cruel men, not only nailed Christ to the cross, but they also nailed our sin to the cross. And in exchange for that, we obtain his righteousness by faith. Not by matching his work, not by somehow esteeming to be more like Christ, but just simply by simple childlike faith, understanding that what Christ did on the cross was not for him. He needed salvation, not at all. But he came to die for his people to save his people from their sin. So the bottom line answer, no one can be saved unless God saves them. The last point I'd like for us to consider, what's the reward for getting the answer right? Is there benefit to that? Is, you, we mentioned that this is a question that we should be asking. This is something that we should get, something we need to answer to. Well, well, Peter, or but when he had heard these things, he became very sad. Sorry, for for Peter said, "Behold, we've done exactly that, Jesus. We've left our houses, we've left our families, and followed you." And Jesus didn't deny that because, after all, when Jesus called them, what did they do? When he called Peter and Andrew, when he called James and John, when he called Matthew at his tax collector stand, when he called his disciples, what did they do? They left where they were and they followed, right? They weren't perfect. They didn't have everything together. And they certainly didn't stop making mistakes after that point. But what did they do? They left where they were and followed him. So Jesus does not deny the fact that what Peter is saying. But what he does is very encouraging to me. He says, truly I say to you, there is none, not one of you who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God 
Again, here we are back with the kingdom of God, not just what we look forward to in the future, but what God has been doing as a sovereign king all along. There is no one for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. They say, well, wait a minute, I thought that we're told in Scripture that if we seek to live a godly life, we will suffer persecution. If we seek to serve the Lord, that that will bring upon hardship, right? Yeah. But when we look at those individuals throughout Scripture who commit themselves to Christ in the midst of those circumstances, what do we find? People groveling and crying and and beating their chest, wishing they'd never made that decision? No. You see people in prison who are singing at midnight. You see people who are threatened with their life and say, hey, I'm not going to stop preaching about Jesus Christ because I would rather serve God than man. You want to, hey, here I am. I'm sure when James, the disciple, was beheaded, I'm sure he wasn't reluctant. Man, I wish I'd never trusted Jesus because now I'm going to die. No, James knew that in his life, everything that he learned from Christ about the life that he was living then as well as the life that was to come, eternal life, he knew it was better then what are you giving up? This is a faithful promise giver making a claim that all of us should cling to. There is not one within the sound of my voice that if he or she was to leave everything behind or loosen their grip on everything they own, or commit everything as we were talking about, take my life and let it be, that there would not be many, many more times in reward in this life as God gives us sweet brothers and, and sisters in Christ. It's a sweet fellowship of fellowshipping with one another. The encouragement that we have in his word the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and everything that he has provided for us, all of these things we have in this life now, but also that great and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, when we know that the things, that the sufferings that we have in this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed when he comes back. That's what we have the offer of today. If we just leave everything behind. That's the reason why I'd like for us to um, prayerfully sing a song together that we're familiar with. I appreciate Tim and always providing some links to the songs that we're going to sing. Uh, he dug way down deep in the well to find George Beverly Shea singing, I'd rather have Jesus. Perhaps for the first time. <laughs> But if you're a believer this morning, I hope that you can sing this saying, hey, that's where I'm at. Or if you're a believer and you say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, my, my toes have been stepped on a little bit this morning, but I know that's where I need to be. Or if you're here without Christ, you may know about him. You may have heard about him. You may believe in him. But, but you still haven't surrendered all to say, 
I'd rather have Jesus than anything. That this would be a beginning of a new walk with Christ that you've never experienced before, but you will never regret. Let's stand together as we sing, I'd rather have Jesus. Thank you.